Traduction. Translation. Traduction. Translator's note. For this spring's final episode of Translator's Note, I spoke with Mary Jo Bang. I had the opportunity to hear her speak here at the University of Iowa, and when her talk sparked more interesting questions for me, I reached out to invite her onto the podcast. Mary Jo Bang is the author of eight books of poetry. Her translation projects include Dante's Inferno and Purgatorio, a co-translation with Yuki Tanaka of The Poetic Experiments of Shuzo Takiguchi, and a collaboration with Matthias Goritz on his poetry collection Colonies of Paradise. She has another book of poetry forthcoming, and in 2025, she'll have completed The Divine Comedy with the publication of her translation of Paradiso. But my first question wasn't about Dante. Instead, I asked her about her other translation projects and her experience translating collaboratively. Translating, co-translating with another person, in some ways is completely different from translating by oneself because you don't get to make all the decisions. On the other hand, you also don't make certain mistakes. So there's a safety in it for someone, particularly a native speaker, to say, no, that won't work because, you know, X, Y, Z. On the other hand, if I have an argument in my mind that convinces me that that will work because, and, you know, I can set out my um, rationale for it, and then the other person is adamant, no, still won't work. You know, there's a frustration in that. But at the same time, there's a challenge in it. Because to, to let go of something you're very attached to, you have to come up with something better. And I think that process is always true when you're working by yourself as well. But you're not quite as aware of it. Instead, you have something, you're happy with it, and then you think later, oh, I have a better idea, and you replace it. Whereas when you're working with someone and they say no to what you think is a great idea, then there's that gap where you don't think you'll ever come up with something better, and why should you bother? Because this is just fine. But then over time, in fact, you do because of that other person you come up with something and then you're happy you did it. So I think that the frustration is true of the co-translating, but that you get to the same place um, where you're very happy with it. And when I think about the years now that um, Yuki Tanaka and I have worked together, I think that there were many moments of great frustration, but at the end, I'm very happy with the work that we've done. And in fact, last summer, because Yuki was spending a long period of time in the States, although not in the same city where I was, we worked on Zoom, but at least we were in the same time zone. So we could work long hours, which is the way we had translated in the beginning. We would work from you know five to eight hour days on the translation, usually because he was here in the summer and then he was leaving or because um, we just felt that when will we ever get this done if we don't work this hard because that book is very long and it's very dense. So there are some prose poems that go on for 12 pages 
and they're very complicated. They're surrealist poems. And so on the one hand, they don't make the kind of sense that makes translation easy because you know exactly what someone's saying. But if someone is only representing their imagination, then it's like, do they really want this apple to be speaking? Or is someone speaking to the apple? And with Japanese, particularly because the word order is so different, sometimes Yuki himself wouldn't be sure. And so we would have to take that sentence apart and look at exactly how the language was working in the one in, in Japanese. And then sometimes a year later, when we go over it again, he'd say, you know what? I don't think I don't think we were right about that. I think in fact someone's speaking to the apple. And then, you know, we would take it apart again to make sure that was correct. The pleasure is that when I'm sitting here by myself year after year translating the Dante, I don't really have anyone who is as excited as I am. Whereas working with Yuki on the translations, and this was true of Matthias as well, that they have so much excitement about what we're doing, about you know the solutions we've come up with, about how it's reading, about the fact that this work will be represented now in, in English and without our work, it wouldn't be. So that sharing is a very sweet thing. I really love the shared excitement that comes from working with another translator and the way that collaboration can, can force you to reevaluate moments in a translation that had maybe felt settled and challenge yourself and your collaborators to come up with alternatives, come up with something that ends up working better. Is that added push, that frustration that you mentioned, something that you try to find a way to bring to your solo translation practice as well? Well, actually, I have more recently had that experience with Dante because there's a dentist, um, Gina Saki, who became interested in my translation and offered to look at every canto and the notes for every canto and go over them with me. And we do this online because she's now living in Italy. So she sends me notes beforehand and then I go and I have that same experience I have with co-translators. Oh no, you know, you're not gonna let me have this. But I don't usually solve the problem until I talk to her because I wanna make sure I totally understand why this can't be. And sometimes it's just a matter of a preposition. Um, so, you know, particularly in, and I think this is true in English too, you can say of or to something, sometimes interchangeably, but other places you can't. And particularly in Dante's Paradiso, we're talking about theology and we're talking about ideas of God versus the human. It's really important if it's from God or to God. So that's been invaluable. Other times, it would be that she didn't understand what I was doing with a word choice. And once we could discuss that, she could help by throwing out some other words. And 
not that those were always the perfect solution, but it gave me a context. Oh, these are the words that describe the situation. And now I can go to a thesaurus, go back to the Italian, go back to other translations and see if there's a word that I'm happy with that now she feels it describes the situation accurately. And so this translation will be accurate in a new way. And, and I think my own standards for translation have changed over time. In the beginning, I don't know that I had any standards. I, I was kind of riffing on um, the Inferno in the very beginning. And then once I decided that I wanted it not to be a pastiche, but a, an actual translation, I still would sometimes move out of what Dante was actually saying in order to say it in a way that was clearer to my reader, my imagined reader. With the Paradiso, I don't feel that I'm able to step out of it because of those theological questions, but I also don't want to. I've become... Um, a translator, period. You know, I know what translation is now, and it's not paraphrase. And and I don't think that Inferno was paraphrased, at least, you know, most of the time. There might have been individual moments. But with Paradiso, the rigor is something I've earned over time and that I've begun to hold myself to. Have you found that as your translation practice and your thinking around translation have changed that Dante's voice, that your rendering of Dante's voice has changed as well? I have tried to keep Dante's voice the same throughout. Now, what that voice is, I've become aware over time that I want Dante to be as intelligent as I imagine this individual who wrote this poem was, his erudition is rather shocking, actually, because he knows so much about astrology, astronomy, science, the weather, the way fire burns, animals. You know, his, his knowledge is vast. So I don't want to dumb that down, and nor does he. In, in his writing and in his creation of a character called Dante. I remember reading in a translation by Robert and Jean Hollander in the note, the translator's note or the introduction, I forget which. Hollander said, I didn't want to make this poem better than it is in the original. And I was shocked by that because how could you like, what would you do if you're trying not to make it better? It already is amazing. It's lasted for over 700 years. So as I've constructed a voice for Dante, I've tried to make it the voice that results from putting English words where the Italian words were and trusting then that that will be every bit as good as the original and no better. So I don't know how a translator would differ 
their practice if they didn't want a poem to be better than they thought it was. But that's always been in the back of my mind as I've let Dante speak. You know, there are many registers in, there are several registers in some languages, like in German, there's a high German and a low German. But in English, we don't think that we have different registers. But the fact is that based on word choice, you know, you can establish a different register for someone. So if somebody talks in simple words, one syllable words, opposed to two or three syllable words for the same description or a question or whatever your whatever their speech is in the service of. It does worry me with Paradiso because Dante is talking to people of the past instead of some of the people from his own generation. That's not entirely true. He just tells me um, Picarda, for instance, is someone he knew on earth. Um, but he's also speaking to um, his great-great-grandfather. And so that person's speech might be different from a colloquial speaker. And so I want to respect that. But at the same time, what's interesting is that Dante sometimes has him speaking in a very colloquial manner. And so if that's true, then how, how essential is it to have that kind of anachronistic way of speaking? Again, other translators will sometimes put thou in the mouth of the older speakers in Paradiso to whom Dante, the character, is speaking. And I've, I've avoided that because I feel that to our ear, that is going to cue for something very particular and, and something that I don't feel is necessary because the words that are being uttered are essential to Dante's development in terms of this spiritual awareness. And so you don't want to interfere with that and you don't want to undermine the power of what these people are saying to him because he's being acted upon by the speeches that he hears. He's, he's growing and that growth is essential for the ending when he comes face to face with God, um, which you know, it is a, a very surprising moment how Dante, the writer, makes that happen. And, you know, I, I don't know whether I should even talk about that because, you know, I'd have to give a spoiler alert, but it, it really is very moving and very clever in terms of how Dante does it. Sadly for all of us, we will have to wait a few years before we can read that startling moment in Mary Jo's translation of Paradiso. But I did ask her one more question on a slightly different topic. I knew her own poetry had been translated into other languages, and I wondered what she had learned as a translator from that experience. Each time my work has been translated, I've had a slightly different experience. I think the most satisfying experiences are when the translator from time to time asks me questions and then I know I have a chance to make clear what 
I was thinking or what I was saying, or more to the point, what I was saying. And because poetry is a form where, as I said before, it's not informational, it's playing with the ambiguity of language. So as a translator, if something is ambiguous, you can send it in um, any number of directions. And I know my English speaker is more likely to have certain obvious associations. And then if they are think about it, there might be more subtle ones. And so I wanna keep that relationship between the obvious and the subtle. And I think it's only by telling someone what you were thinking and what you're counting on an English speaking reader to think when they see those words. So the least satisfying experience I had where was where someone didn't ask me any questions. And then when I saw the galleys, I could see obvious errors. And even though I didn't, I wasn't fluent in that language, but I think that that there's a lot of pressure as a translator too to not suggest that you know you, you don't know what the other language says but if you live in America you speak a different English than even if you live in England and so it's not possible unless you've spent a long time living here and even then language changes if you've left. So I think it's really useful to ask questions if you have a living poet. And and so far, I've always been here if someone wants to ask questions. Of course, after the person goes, you know, you're left with the poem, as I've been left with Dante's poem. Translator's Note is produced by Claire Bregarbalski. This show is an affiliate of Exchange's Journal of Literary Translation and is made with the support of the University of Iowa Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures and the International Writing Program. Thanks to Nate Repaz for the theme music and credit for other music used in the show can be found on our website. As always, Translator's Note also wants to thank Aruna G, Jan Stein, and the MFA in Literary Translation community at the University of Iowa for their support. And thank you so much to Mary Jo Bang for her thoughtful answers and for her time. Traduction.